Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senior, the president of Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. Uh, I am uh, leading this podcast through the Sermon on the Mount. We've only got this one and one last one, and we're through. It's been about a year. I hope it's been beneficial. I hope it's raised the dialogue. I hope a lot of things. And and uh, let me know, Bill at gospel-app.com. Let me know how this has affected you. And look, this podcast, troubling set of verses, three only three verses. I think this podcast is so clear and helpful. Let me know, Bill at gospel-app.com. If you've been confused up to this point, this should bring you over the finish line. Again, familiar verse like so many others, so often misunderstood, misapplied. Um, such, such, such good news. For Christians, by the way, who are struggling with their faith, struggling with church, institutionalized church, if it's not you, maybe you know them. Maybe they've left church because they're tired of being shamed. They're tired of the rules. They're tired of failing. And they're going to love this. Um, think of the 60 plus percent millennials who fled church for that very reason. This could be a game changer. Or at least change the spirit of the dialogue and get people back into the discussion. Well, so how do you do that? Well, Look, you're listening to this podcast, The Gospel Rant, on a platform, on a podcast platform. So on that platform, like it, follow it, then share it. Find the share button and share it to whatever your favorite social media platform is. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, uh, LinkedIn, TikTok. Share it and, and just let it go out there. Send it to your email list. Send it to your church. Send it to your small group, your life group. Look, I think this is really good stuff, and, and we hope, my passion is to come alongside of struggling Christians, uh, one person at a time, and help them hear the music again. All right, here's the passage, Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, that's pretty scary. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Meaning, didn't we do a lot? Didn't we do a lot of religious stuff and good stuff? In your name even, he repeats in your name. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Ouch. Which, by the way, is probably what the people on the hillside, the poor in spirit, had heard maybe verbatim from religious leaders and societal leaders and village leaders. Uh, I never knew you away from me, evildoers, you impure. So it's interesting, again, if once we think of the crowd. Look, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you've heard the verse, you've been hit with this verse in order to get you to scare you, to guilt you, to, uh, to shame you into changing behavior. Not or or to or to do something positively like tithe or go to church and so forth. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," makes it to heaven. I mean, sermon after sermon after sermon, and that's pretty intimidating. But look, even more so, considering Jesus's audience, who've been told for such a long time, maybe some of them all of their lives, that they weren't up to speed related to God and God's very difficult requirements. So they're not going to make it to heaven. That's what they had been told, and they likely believed. But they get it, I think, after 
so far in this series, I think they're getting that Jesus isn't speaking to them, uh, about them. I mean, he could have been pointing directly at the lavishly clothed scribes or the more rustically yet clearly demarcated dress of the Pharisees. Well, why do I say that? Well, it wasn't the poured spirit on the hillside who were prophesying about anything. That wasn't their jam. They weren't casting out demons or performing any miracles. They came to Jesus for miracles, right? So I don't think, right? I think he's talking to a different audience. So I'm going to say that the very crux of the passage uh, is this. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I mean, that's that's the rub here. And we're going to get to that. Do you want to know what the will of your Father in heaven is? Stick with this podcast. So that's the issue here. What's the will of God? That one must do, quote unquote, in order to make it to heaven. Right. What is God's will? Well, clearly, Jesus is saying it's not just using rhetoric. It's not just calling him Lord. It's just not praying and finishing your prayers in the name of Jesus. It's not doing miracles even or prophesying, which would include preaching, by the way. So what is it? And who's doing it? And remember, Jesus handed this crowd of unlikelies the king, the keys to the kingdom already. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, without any list of do's or don'ts, the kingdom of heaven is yours, he says. So is he changing his mind? Is he adding to the pile on their already burdened shoulders? Is he trying to guilt them? Is he about ready to pass the plate? <laughs> no. All right. We're going to dig into it, but first, let's take a break and get a word from our sponsors, and then we dig in. See you in a minute. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country, dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Okay, reminder, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the very first thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, enviable are the ones who haven't made the grade. Those who've been rejected by family, by the religious, those who believe that they're cursed by God, sick, left out, demon-possessed, despised, made to live outside of villages and, and families, the unclean, and they can't do, quote-unquote, anything. It's not like they can stop being sick. And Jesus says to them, the kingdom of heaven is yours. That's how Jesus starts the series. I mean, for us, it was about a year ago. What do they need to do? Well, clearly there's a lot of things they should do. And at the top of the list is love God and love neighbors and love even their political religious enemies who've treated them so badly. Uh, and, and that's just a beginning of the list. But Jesus does not require 
these things of them before they get the kingdom of heaven. They get the kingdom of heaven. Same words used here, kingdom of heaven. So, and if you recall, how did we unpack what the kingdom of heaven was? Just a reminder, it wasn't a place, it wasn't a castle with a moat, knights in armors, and, and coats of arms, and things like that. It was a metaphor for God himself. They get God. God's yours. You are God's. They get that enviable relationship with God that was given to Abraham, to David, to Moses. It's crazy, right? And if I was them, putting myself in their sandals, I wouldn't have believed it. Not at first. I mean, no one in their right mind would have dared to say that publicly to them. The teacher would have lost all credibility. I mean, it would have been too good to believe. And you know, if it's too good to believe, it's too good to believe. So I'm surprised, by the way, Jesus wasn't stoned by the scribes and Pharisees on the spot. So for the poor in spirit, they weren't able to be embraced by their families or the religious or influencers, the leaders in their village, but they get to be held and loved by God. Kingdom. All right, check it out. The difference between 5.3 and 7.21 is, is one small thing. In the first passage, Jesus gives them the relationship. So uh, to shift metaphors, you are now the bride of Christ. You're married. Or you're adopted. You're now the beloved son or daughter of God with whom he is well pleased and it's locked in. You got it. It's a gift. It's legal. Nobody can take it away from you. And Jesus is going to pay the high, high price in a few years, but you're in. Now, in 721, there's a different um, addition, different point of view. One seems to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Greek word is erkomai. And it's a generic verb. It can be. It can mean enter into a space. So he entered the city. He erkomied the city. She entered the building. Erkomied the building. But in a context, it could rightly mean came to enjoy or came to experience something. So track me. If you want to come and experience the embrace of God, his love, his favor towards you, how proud of you he is, there's something you can do and are supposed to do. Uh, to enter into that, to experience that, to come to enjoy that. Are you following me? So um, back to our metaphor, you can be married legally and not be experiencing your partner's love, right? You can be a child of the father and not experience how proud of he uh, of you he is. Yeah. And particularly, by the way, if you've been abandoned, abused, overlooked, tr treated critically, despised, your brain in that situation is working overtime to set up protective boundaries and walls to keep you from getting hurt. And these are inner working models. These are wirings. And it takes a lot of effort, say, say counseling, for instance, or some targeted healing before you can even begin to feel safe in relationships again, particularly that one. And that was the people on the hillside. But Jesus wanted them to experience the relationship. He not only wanted them to have the relationship with God, that was 5.3, he wants them to experience it. That's 7.21 to erkomai it. This is such great news. So many Christians have the relationship. You're a Christian. You're going to heaven. But fewer are actually experiencing it. Some have said 75%, three-quarters of Christians, maybe more, are afraid when they're honest, when they get to heaven, God's going to just reject them. God's going to walk away to shake his head. Heaven's theirs, but they've stopped hearing the music. This is one of the reasons we created the dance. 
www.the-dance.org. It's to give regular Christians who've stopped feeling the love and favor of God. I mean, they felt it once, but they've stopped now. And it's to help them uh, get it back a little or a lot, to air comai the kingdom of heaven. So many Christians, and I'm, t- I'm saying good people, worry that God is so disappointed in them, their failures, their actions, their lack of actions, that when they see his face, he's going to walk away. So the dance is a two-hour online journey. We're going to teach you how to dance again. And and it's it's simple, baby steps. Anybody can do it. We give you a before and after survey to measure changes by four metrics. Very powerful, very popular. If you want to air Kamai, the kingdom of heaven, a little more, here's something targeted, simple, baby steps that you can do. www.the-dance.org. All right, so uh, what is the key? If you've been following this podcast through the Sermon on the Mount, you can probably answer the question. I hope. You can't get there by doing anything to somehow earn it. You can't experience the love of God by prophesying, by miracles, by saying some words repetitively, including the Lord's Prayer. You remember the series, the four-part series we did on the Lord's Prayer. See, I know you want to believe that you can because you're a human being, because it puts control in your hands. But thank God he's he's, he's not relegated to, to putting things in your hands. The people on the hillside, right, the failures, they found a way, and so can you and I. Sadly, there's many self-sufficient religious Christians who tragically believe that they have it or they do it if they only did enough, whatever enough means. And Jesus, you know, I never knew you. Interesting choice of words, right? Double connotations. You might know this if you've been a Christian for a while. Uh, I never knew you could mean I never met you. We weren't introduced, um, not properly. Well, that's not likely what he meant because he knows you, right? To know has another sense, this double connotation of being intimate, being in the embrace of, the arms of. So you say you know me, but we've never embraced or kissed or held each other in in an embrace. You know, we've all been purely platonic. Uh, It's just been a contract. It's been a, a employment, something like that. Or I just say, yeah, I profess my love for you, but it doesn't really mean love. It means, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to stick you in the back with a shiv. So, oh, you believe in me, Jesus says. You acknowledge, you check a box that I'm your savior. I'm the son of God. I'm the one who pays for all your sins, right? Check, 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 check. But do you really know him? And are you experiencing his favor of you more than just a rational distance? You know, maybe, maybe not. I'm suggesting that the unloved and disrespected in the crowd were getting it. They were, they were a miracle was happening in their brain that made them feel honored and respected for the first time in a long, long while, maybe their entire life. Their brains were pumping dopamine in the presence of Jesus. They were feeling good, oxytocin. I'll, by the way, I'm going to be talking about that in, in the next series, the th- three-part Valentine series of of how my brain actually experiences this love and bonding. Oh my goodness, it's going to be groundbreaking. I'll say more about that in a minute. But they were feeling this bonding with Jesus. They were feeling favored. That's So put yourself in, that, in their sandals. And how do we know? Because Jesus, I mean, Matthew says that they followed. Great crowds did. What in the world would possess this hodgepodge of broken, beat-up humanity, skeptical people, to follow anyone? Right? They would they would tend to be very independent survivors, self-sufficient. At the end of the day, it's all in their hands because that's how they survive. 
They learned to be skeptical. They learned to not trust the man, but they followed Jesus. Something has happened. A miracle has occurred. That's some of the first uh, podcasts we did on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, here's Dallas Willard. Standing around Jesus as he speaks are people with no spiritual qualifications or abilities at all. You would never call on them when spiritual work is to be done. There's nothing about them to suggest that the breath of God might move through their lives. They have no charisma, no religious glitter or clout. They don't know their Bible. They know not the law, as a later critic of Jesus's work said. They are mere lay people who at best can fill a pew or perhaps an offering plate no one calls on them to lead a service or to even lead a prayer, and they might faint if anyone did. They're the first to tell you they really can't make heads nor tails of religion. They walk by us in the hundreds or thousands every day. They would be the last to say they have any claim whatsoever on God. The pages of the gospel are cluttered with such people, and yet he touched me. The rule of the heavens comes down upon their lives through their contact with Jesus and then they too are blessed, healed of body, mind, or spirit in the hand of God. Uh, close quote. Way to go, Dallas. So they have ercomied the kingdom. They have, er they have entered the kingdom, the embrace of God. Miraculous. I mean, don't try to figure it out. Um, I'm also suggesting that many, particularly the, the religious professionals, didn't. That's the contrast. In fact, they began to conspire to kill this, this, this man. They're preaching a different religion. Remember from the previous podcast, it's bad apples, it's, it's wolves. Um, and these people are getting it, and they're, uh, the professionals are going to come in and try to lay burdens on top of the, the people and rob them of that embrace. So who from Jesus' point of view did he really know? Who were really beginning to know him? What's the difference? Simple. We're going to take another break from our sponsors, and we will get into something very special in just a minute. All right, but first a break. See you in a minute. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, back to the secret sauce. 
but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's who's going to enter in. If you've been tracking this podcast for a while, you know what I'm going to say. Broken post-fall humans hear a statement like this, and Jones for a list of, uh, of what the will of God entails. We, we're willing to do the list, at least work on it if we can, write books about it, do conferences on it, and but we're going to fail. All right, but we, we find comfort in having a list that we can check off. Okay, God, tell me what you want me to do. Give me the bottom line. Give me some, you know, some some levels that I can, like a video game, so I can finally hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, or at least I can hear you say, well, you know, you tried this week. And, and I'm not going to get the entire list done because perfect is perfect, but I'm going to do my best and hope that's good enough. Man, that's so sad, <laughs> even as I say it. A lot of books out there about this sort of stuff, what the will of God is, and they give you a list. Oh, my goodness. We want to know and know how to do the will of God. All right, so what is it? Uh, we have this discipleship program for young adults called Take Heart YZ, so Gen Y, Gen Z. Uh, it, you can access it at gospel-app.com forward slash product forward slash take dash heart dash YZ dash workbook. Gospel-app.com forward slash product forward slash take dash heart dash YZ dash workbook. And we take a very interesting look at the Cain and Abel story. Uh, and we, we find the first fruits of the, the, the uh, will of God there. And you're likely familiar with the story. They're the first sons, the first murder. First impression of how God deals with something as horrible as murder. And to see, the law hadn't happened. It won't happen for a long time. And such an act in the law would be a capital offense and subjected to death, right? Cain murders his brother Abel. But God does not treat Cain that way. So I want you to listen to about a 10-minute uh, portion of that, uh, that workbook. It's a video program, and uh, I just want you to listen to it. My uh, my daughter, Allison, is uh, the spokesperson, and we'll get back to you in, in a few minutes. ML Alert. Turn in your workbook to the page labeled Bible Study, Genesis 4. So the story really begins with the two sons of Adam and Eve preparing sacrifices for an offering to God. On the surface, as an act of submission and worship, right? Good stuff. Abel, the shepherd, brings some of the firstborn of the flock, and Cain brought some of his crops. Both set up a burnt offering. So then what? Well, something's up. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Ouch. That's going to leave a mark. Let's chat about this. So how this is usually taught is something like this. Well, Cain didn't bring first fruit. Abel brought his firstborn sheep. Everybody knows that God prefers those offerings. And if you want God's favor, you better not mess around and be chintzy. There are consequences. It's a formula. All relationships are like that. But this is not so clear in the passage. So here's the thing. Up until this point, there's been no clarity about what good offerings and bad offerings look like. This is years before Moses and the law was written down. No prescription. That would look something like this. Thus saith the Lord, that's how they spoke back then, if you want to please me and earn my favor and blessing, cool, then here's what I want from sacrifices. If you want to be my child in good standing, my favor, my protection, my bragging about you in the heavens, my blessing, don't mess this one up. There are consequences. Here's what we do know. First of all, even during the time of Moses, Cain's offering is 
quite an acceptable offering, pleasing to the Lord. Secondly, Abel only brought some of the firstborn. It seems at least from later law that this was a bit dicey. God never says Abel's offering was somehow intrinsically better than Cain's. We just assume that's the case. How else would we explain God's apparent dissing of Cain? Also, we can rightly assume that this was a larger deal because Cain was the firstborn. Being the firstborn was important. Cain likely expected that God would doubly bless him. This would have been a very public disrespect. Cain certainly would have felt shame and maybe also guilt. Maybe felt insecure in his relational attachment to God. Avoidant, maybe anxious. Follow? So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. I guess so. I get this. I'd be ticked off too, wouldn't you? The idiom, face was downcast, implies that he only looked down at the ground, not up into the eyes of God, the measuring gaze of God. Insecure relational attachment, right? Why? Shame? Guilt? Avoidant child? Anxious child? Could be any of these things, or all of them. Definitely doesn't feel loved, accepted, adored, appreciated, or favored. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? The Hebrew idiom accepted probably implies to be experientially restored to favor. So to become a secure son or daughter again. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Weird, right? God doesn't appear very angry at Cain at all. If Cain was being punished for being cheap and disrespectful to God, we might expect a fireball from heaven or some form of wrath or condemnation. Nada. In fact, God asks Cain something very interesting. Why are you looking down at the ground, Cain? This implies, Cain, why aren't you looking up into my gaze, into my eyes? Well, arguably, lots of answers perhaps, all unspoken. Anger, fear, avoidance, shame, guilt, jealousy, anxiety. So instead of looking up, Cain deals with the issue himself. Classic insecure attachment behavior. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. What do you think Cain was thinking? I'd suggest that he wasn't thinking at all. He was well into reactionary behavior, murderous reactionary behavior. There was no recorded evidence of difficulty between Cain and Abel before. Cain's brain, flooded with chemicals, launched him into fight, flight, or freeze. He fought. It wasn't reasonable. It wasn't caring. His actions certainly didn't do a thing to gain God's favor, which is nominally what he wanted to do at the beginning of the story. That's what he was angry he didn't get. His strategy didn't work. It was nowhere close. It was crazy. Okay, now he's in for it. God certainly hates this. And being a just God requires quick and severe punishment. Cain's toast, right? Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. 
Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Look, if God is angry and wrathful, it's very hard to tell. God doesn't need to ask Cain anything. He's all-knowing, right? Why might he be asking Cain about the location of his brother? I can only think of one reason. God seems to be trying to engage Cain so that Cain can begin to see his craziness, his acting out. This is not lacking justice or seriousness over the value of life. Hold that thought. Cain's response is like an anxious child. Not well thought out. Punishing God, perhaps. Again, reactionary and over the top. Not a smart thing to do in God's presence, right? But again, God doesn't really react to the disrespect much. God does curse Cain. One, you're driven from the ground. Two, the ground will be stingy with crops now. And three, you'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Anybody else think this curse is kind of out of whack? What's the penalty for murder? Death, right? What's going on? Do you see pretty obvious evidence that Cain is acting out as an insecure adult? See the little phrase of Cain, and I will be hidden from your presence? First, God never says that. You could translate Cain's statement as, I can never look up into your eyes then. Crazy. I would suggest that God's endgame has always been for Cain to look up, to see God's still favorable gaze and be restored to favor, honor, worth, a secure attachment. Cain wouldn't look up even when God pleaded with him before, and now he blames God for not being able to. What about justice for his brother's cold-blooded murder? Sure, absolutely, God is very strict on all sin. The penalty of all sin is death. Certainly true for murder. But God, we know now, takes on the penalty due his children on his own shoulders so that they would be restored and can re-enter into a secure, life-giving, adoring, furious love affair. That's what our God naturally does. He doesn't take injustice lightly at all. He himself pays its full price. This is as true for Cain as it is for you and me. This story only makes sense if God is humiliating himself, I'm speaking in human terms, in order to bless Cain, to usher Cain into a higher, secure relationship than he had ever experienced since the big mess. He's pursuing Cain as a great lover would. All Cain ever had to do, just like his parents before him, was to do what is right. Then God said he would be accepted. The insecurities dealt with by God himself and the firstborn restored to a place of honor that he no way deserved, but is given freely by grace. Humanity redeemed, reattached into a loving, secure relationship with God again. A high calling for the firstborn. Until Cain really sees God as benevolent and adoring, he'll remain insecure in all of his relationships, every one of them. He'll never be who he could be. He can only be cain light, lonely, guilty, ashamed, paranoid, they'll kill me, acting out to punish God, the very one he wants favor from. 
all of the crazy things that you and I do on a daily basis, if we're honest. I'd suggest that this is what God has always planned for Cain. This wasn't a morality lesson on the benefits of doing really good offerings, but God sought to restore Cain to the secure relationship that his parents had forfeited by not looking up. Wouldn't that have been far better than an attaboy for giving a good offering? Cain's problem, as well as Abel, as well as mom and dad, was that they had a self-imposed insecure relationship with God. Remember the big mess? No offering, no matter how good or expensive, had power to reattach an insecure child. Cain, the firstborn, was given a shocking opportunity to repair that breach. How? All he had to do was look up. But he wouldn't, even when God pleaded with him two times to do what was really right. Just look up and see, Cain. All you need is need. Okay. I know that interpretation kind of shatters some universes, but take a few minutes and chat about Cain and God. Okay, so are we getting it? The will of God. It's the same for us as it was for Cain. And maybe you're a murderer, maybe not, but it's the same. If you're poor in spirit and you can't do it, which is everybody, look up into the adoring eyes of God. You can do that. And then when you look into his eyes, you'll see the love you've longed for. It'll change you. This is a powerful love. So there is something you can do that even the murderer Cain could do, and that's to look up. With shame and guilt and failures and just look up into the eyes, the gaze of God. Uh, Then you will begin to know him. Then you will begin to experience the kingdom of heaven. Here's Belden Lane. Divine love is incessantly restless until it turns all woundedness into health, all deformity into beauty, and all embarrassment into laughter. That's God's desire. That's Jesus' desire. I think the Pharisees largely missed that. Well, have you? I mean, do you today? It's so simple and yet so hard. All right. Um, We're headed for the anchor of the Sermon on the Mount, the last So familiar, so misunderstood parable. The two houses, one on sand, one on rocks. We've screwed it up. We've switched them around. I think you'll be surprised, at least interested. Um, After the Sermon on the Mount, I've mentioned February 12th, I'm launching a three-podcast series on love and romance. I'm calling it What's Love Got to Do With It from the 1984 Tina Turner song. Uh, Valentine's Day is on the 14th, so we'll be immersing Valentine's in this three-part series. We're going to be looking at love from some unusual points of view. Have you ever wondered how love happens in your brain? When you look at someone, you feel something good in your brain, you become kind of stupid. I mean, no judgment. Your heart rate rises, you become OCD, you can't stop thinking about her or him. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you, and it's lots of fun. We're not going to get into the neuroscientific weeds, but the research is there. Then we're going to look at the history of love. Very interesting. How did the ancients view it, particularly the Greeks, the Romans, Paul, you've heard of agape, eros, and phileo, and you've been told God's love is agape? Uh, Or is it? I think you'll be surprised. And then, of course, we'll zero in on what God's love is all about. What's so special about it? Why is it worth leaning into? Why are we longing for that? Right? All right. What's love got to do with it? February 12th, 19th, 26th. Do us a favor and help get the word out. I think this will be a game changer. And don't forget the online 
Journeys, The Forgiving Path, The Dance, Good Enough Parent, just go to the website, gospel-app.com, and you'll see them. They can make a difference. Good Enough Parent, remember, is totally free. 15 tips sent to you, one a day for 15 days. If you know parents who are struggling with their teens or tweens, oh my goodness, get them the word on this one, goodenoughparent.online. It is free. Before we go, Lent is coming up. You're a small Easter, right? Your small group may be wondering what study guide to use. Let me strongly recommend one of our most popular engaged series, seven parts, the journey, uh, gospel-app.com forward slash engage. I think you'll love it. I think your group will thank you. I'm also finishing up a quest adventure book for young teens, junior high age. It's a thinly veiled gospel presentation for tweens. Everything we've been talking about on this podcast it's putting a fun uh, adventure allegory, no churchy speak, no religious speak. Think of a modern attempt at Chronicles of Narnia. I'm looking for youth ministry specialists and movers and shakers and influencers and champions and, and publishers and agents to come alongside this project. Contact me, bill at gospel-app.com. Uh, if, if you're a publisher, definitely let me know. All right, uh, and get the word out. Thanks again to Life Audio for their support of this podcast. Check out other podcasts at their website, lifeaudio.com. All right, we'll see you on the last podcast of the Sermon on the Mount series next week. Take heart, child of God. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, You can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.